This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pal, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. How are you? I'm fine, Kevin. I'm uh, into week three here in Arizona. Um, I will take a break this weekend and come back to Dallas, and that will be good. I am. Uh, I miss you a little bit, but I miss my wife, and I miss my dogs, and I even miss the cat more. So uh, that'll all be good to get home and see them, and we'll we'll have a big meal out on Sunday night. We got a big family dinner uh, party planned uh, for a birthday, and. Um, uh, we'll uh, we'll have a good time. Where are you gonna go? Town Hearth. Town Hearth. This is Nick's birthday, and Nick wants to go to Town Hearth because he's got good tastes. Oh, well, that is good. Town Hearth is good. I'll have to say that. You know, we uh, Debbie and I just. Uh, well, she's still there. I I went on a boondoggle with her to Las Vegas. She had a, a convention, um, and uh, I spent a couple of days. I had to come back early. Because uh, I realized I had agreed to a junior league uh, luncheon speaking engagement last spring, uh, which I don't know why anybody would expect me to remember something that I did that long ago. I didn't realize you were in the junior league, Kevin. That's great. Well, it's, you. you know, it's it's a diversity attempt by the league uh, to try to draw in old men. Uh, so it's 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 really a great idea. So I'm I'm speaking to that group today, and then I'm. Got a little interview uh, this afternoon. Um, Did you go by the Sphere while you were in Las Vegas? Did you go well, see you too? Well, we drove by it. We drove by it, and it was very spectacular. Uh, you know, I've had uh, over the years, not often, but a couple of times, bouts with vertigo. And so someone said, might not be a good idea for you. And as a heart patient, a double up on that. Probably not a good idea to go in there and have all that stuff happening. Maybe a little too much for your senses. So that's I, I didn't I didn't jump in the, to that. Gina is very unnerved by the sphere. She doesn't quite she doesn't quite get it. Um, and so I it's thinking it of the devil. Is that what she thinks? I, she just it, it bedevils her like to see the images projected on it. Um, and I don't think when she's seen inside, she doesn't quite get the the verticality of it. Um, but I will say this: you two is the in my uh, of the rock bands of my life, U2 is probably the greatest band that I've never seen. So I would like to see them before I or they die. The, you, old rock guys never die; they live forever. They're just pickled, you know. I thought about that until Jimmy Buffett died last year. He's not a rock guy. We're talking about guys who are getting stoned all the time. This is proof. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer band were never getting stoned. <laughs> True. Okay. All right. That's a great point. There's the guy uh, there's that Jamaican army fired at because they thought he was running drugs. <laughs> That's an excellent point. 
Excellent. Well, I'm just thinking, I always think about Mick Jagger and the fact that he's like two years younger than my mother-in-law. And it's just the most, uh, you know, amazing thing ever that these people have lived so long. I don't Dude, if, you, if, if I had been told about rock stars of the 60s and 70s, you know, Jimmy Page and um, uh, Keith Richards should have been dead like 50 years ago. And they're going to outlive oh. us all. Oh, uh, it's unbelievable. Well, for all we know, they are dead. That's the thing. They are they are the walking dead. I think that is the that is the thing we don't realize. They are actually dead. So anyway, so we. I, I told you, well, you know the story about Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, right? And how it was it played a part in Bruce Bochy deciding to come back and manage the Rangers. I wrote about that. You know, yeah, went, I, think I, I think I remember that. Yeah, he went and saw the Stones, and he kind of well during his retirement, and he's watching Jagger, and he goes, "Well, this guy's almost eighty, and he's out there prancing around." I can still manage. I'd like it if he would manage like that. If he would prance around, it's a little hard for him to prance on that knee, but it would be it would be good looking, wouldn't it? See him out he, there. He dances occasionally in the dugout. He likes to dance for us occasionally. Comes out and does a little dance. Yesterday he was in a very playful mood. Walked into the media briefing and he said, uh, "Hey, did y'all hear about our sign? This is after the day after I wrote about my big proposal for the Rangers to sign Jordan Montgomery." And he said. Y'all hear about our signing? And uh, we all kind of like did a double take and looked around the room at PR like, uh, is there something we missed here? And he goes, that's because we didn't have one. <laughs> so I, I think that's Bruce's, I think that's his uh, message to management is, hey, we need to sign it. I think, I, I would I think I, I'd, I'd be interested to see um, if Bochi, look, from my perspective, Bruce Bochy and Chris Young should have some leverage here right now. Like things that they say should carry weight. Um, and I'll be interested to see if and when ownership comes out here this spring, if they try and press that a little bit more with Jordan Montgomery still unsigned. I, I, I think, and we we're getting into this, obviously we're talking Rangers, but I think that there have been some, some things that have happened over the last week or 10 days that certainly indicate to me that there's a pathway forward for the Rangers uh, with Jordan Montgomery, and there's there, there's probably a need and a desire. When you've got both Marcus Simeon and Nathan Avaldi talking on the record to me about how much Jordan would mean to this team at this point in time, I think that's a signal that this team feels like he's needed, not just wanted, he's needed. Yeah, I think so too. I was uh, yeah, I was a uh, I, I wouldn't say surprised to see that. I mean, that, that's what you would think those. I mean, you know those guys think that. First of all, uh, the fact that they they say it out loud publicly that's a that's a different uh, issue. And I think that they're fulfilling their roles as leaders of that team to do that. Frankly, this is what champions do. This is what leaders of champions do: is that they say they stand up for what they believe in, and they believe in the fact that that team needs an experienced starter, a guy that, as uh, I think it was Evaldi or maybe it was Simeon, I can't remember which one said, but I guess it was Simeon. We wouldn't have got to the – we wouldn't have won, won the World Series without him. I, and, I, Kevin, I think the other part of that is that, like, if you were to go out and sign Jordan Montgomery now, you make this team better on two fronts. This, this team doesn't have a whole lot of great options for long relievers, and they're going to need multiple inning relievers, particularly early in the season – as guys start to get stretched out. So if you slide Montgomery into the rotation and then you slide Cody Bradford into a multi-inning relief role, now all of a sudden 
you've got a really good option in a multi-inning relief role, so your bullpen's a little bit deeper and a little bit better, and your starting rotation. No offense to Cody Bradford whatsoever, but your starting rotation is better with Jordan Montgomery there. Yeah, you know, I, I did like Cody Bradford last year. We never really talked about him. I thought he showed a lot of poise and uh, the fact that he throws strikes, uh, and I can see why they like him. You know, I, I, to me, uh, this is kind of like, a, you know, a Cole Reagan's starter kit is what it kind of seems like a little bit. Uh, so uh, I don't know that he'll ever be able to get to the velocity that Cole Reagan's did. Well, that's what I was going to say. He doesn't throw as hard, uh, but you know, if, if but he throws more thing, strikes than guys do. He's a he's a big time strike thrower. Yeah, and that's what you got to like about that. So this is you know, I, I, it, and there's no reason to throw him right in the fire either. You know, uh, being in that multi inning role is, would be better for him. I think it helped Dane Dunning some last year to kind of be in that role, and of course, he's got a lot more experience than than Cody Bradford does. Uh, but uh, and, and speaking of uh, uh, Dane Dunning, what is this mystery pitch that he's supposed to be throwing? Did I miss that somewhere? He keeps talking about it. He threw it once the other day, and it went 47 feet. So <laughs> whatever the mystery is right now, it, it's probably better to, to keep on um, uh, sheets. It's obviously some kind of breaking pitch, but he and Cody Bradford um, – uh, and Owen White all spent a lot of time this winter at Tread Athletics in North Carolina. I bring Tread up because Tread is a place where Cole Reagans had gone uh, two years ago when he first got healthy, and it's a place that helped him really ramp up his velo. But it's also the place where Jordan Montgomery spent a lot of time the previous offseason and where he came up with what was termed the death ball, his big-time curveball. So uh, I think Tread has become the Rangers' Um, independent lab of choice as opposed to driveline. Uh, I think there are some stronger Ranger connections there. And I think in talking with Dane in particular, and he's been there each of the last two winners, I think there's some thought that the folks at Tread communicate to players uh, at a different level than the driveline people do. And I know what you're thinking, Kevin. I know what, what you're is, thinking. What is it I'm thinking? What am I you're thinking? You're thinking, well, if these Tread people are so good – how come they're not the Rangers pitching development department? Um, <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you, I, I, I've asked this question a lot. And I, I, the Rangers have certainly had their issues when it comes to pitching development. You can't hide from that. There's no running away from that. But I do think there is also something to be said on this level. When players go out and seek out their independent pitching gurus in the offseason, two things. These players all grew up with like their own independent gurus, right, who were teaching them as, as, as young players. And secondly, when you're paying somebody out of your own pocket, as opposed to somebody who's working for the organization, when you're paying them and they give you advice, even if it's the same advice that the club has given you, you tend to listen a little bit more and or, or you tend to apply it a little bit more because you don't want to feel like you're wasting your money. So I think there's a psychological element of that as well. Um, but in this day and age, as many people as you have, on staff and with guys working with independent guys in the offseason, I think you just have to accept that this is the way of doing business right now. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, but, you, of course, one of the things we always used to hear was, oh, he's got too many voices in his head. Uh, as long as everybody's on the same page, it's it's all great. Uh, you, you just don't want it to be something where uh, he's got too many. Uh, in, in the middle of his, of his backswing, he's got all these voices. So uh, let me ask you this about 
all of that. Uh, before we get to Owen White, I know you want to talk about him. Uh, uh, John Gray, supposedly working on uh, ancillary pitches, uh, you know, got a great fastball slider, a uh, great two picks, two pitch mix. He doesn't really have something to fall back on that third pitch. What What are we understanding about what he's doing? Listen, everybody's always trying to work on an extra pitch in spring training. You know, the, I, I remember the first year I got here, somebody had told me they were working on a changeup, and I went so excitedly to Fraley. I was 20, I was 30 years old, and I went so excitedly to Fraley. Hey, guess what? So-and-so told me he was, I forget who it was, working on a changeup, working on a changeup. And Jerry, in his own inimitable way, uninimitable way, just looked at me and said, everybody's working on the changeup in spring training. Everybody's trying to find a third pitch. And I, that's the case. They, they work on stuff. But look, Gray's, Gray's bread and butter is the fastball and the slider. Um, I think that last year, Gray threw both the sweeper and the slider to some extent. Um, I think that I've finally been broken down to the point where I accept the sweeper and the slider as, as kind of different pitches because the, the, the slider definition now is somewhere in terms of a break between a curveball and, and the sweeper, and the sweeper is, is more horizontal. So, um, yes, they're all working on new pitches this spring, um, but as evidenced by Dane Dunning's first attempt to throw the mystery ball, we'll, we'll just call it the mystery ball. We had mystery teams in free agency. Well, mystery balls now. Um, and I, I, I said this today, and I said, what if – what if the mystery pitch is no pitch whatsoever? What if you're just planting this in people's mind that, oh, my God, he's going to throw this mystery pitch at some point in time, and that's the psychological advantage. He said, hey, maybe you're onto something there. So we'll Did Can't Hope Park have a mystery pitch? Yeah, it was the gopher ball. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, yeah, I, I shouldn't dump on Chan Ho that way. He just was in a bad situation at a bad time, but uh, – everybody's trying to come up with something different at this point in time. And by the end of spring, you know, you're relying on, you better be relying on your fastball first and being able, able to throw it for strikes. And I will say that so far, you know, the Rangers, what I've been most impressed with on the pitching side um, is the Rangers have thrown, thrown strikes. They haven't, they haven't walked a ton of guys early, which is interesting because, you know, they've used a lot of young guys early. So um, that's encouraging. If you're throwing strikes early, uh, it beats the alternative. Yeah. I will say about uh, uh, John Gray working on the third. He, he needs a third pitch uh, because, you know, he he was last year when he came out and he'd been hurt and came back and was in the bullpen. He was lights out, you know, in in the ALCS. And uh, uh, I'm trying to remember if that was ALCS or the World Series. Um, and he, he was just an answer. Uh, I, I, I guess it was ALCS against the Astros because they were really getting uh, roughed up. And when he came in, he kind of set everything in order. Um, but, you know, as a starting pitcher, you got to have more than two. Uh, so I, I do think it's a, it's more of an issue with him probably than it. I mean, Dane Dunning's got an assortment of pitches. I don't, you know. The, the you know, pitch, Oral, Oral Hershiser in his brief time as the Rangers pitching coach once said, um, or often said, you got to have you got to have one pitch to get up here. You got to have two pitches to compete, and you got to have three pitches to really win. And so Gray, you know, Gray threw the fastball about forty-two percent of the time last year, and he threw the slider. Um, and again, it, it does not it, it, it does not register right now on fan graphs as whether or on Savant as whether it was a slider or a sweeper. 
but he threw the slider 40% of the time and he threw the changeup about 11%. If he can, if he can ramp that up just a little bit more, um, get, get it closer to 15% with effectiveness, then all of a sudden I think that's at the point in time where you start to, to put some uncertainty in hitters' heads. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Owen White. Uh, he did not have a good outing uh, on uh, Monday. No, uh, no. That we're, we're, you've got your W's and your 2018 draft picks confused. Let's go back. Owen Wynn. We're talking Owen, about Cole Wynn. Cole Wynn. Owen Wynn, Owen White, Cole Wynn, Cole White. There's, there's, too, there's too much of this stuff for me. You know, I get all Let's this Let's roll that stuff. back. Cole Reagans. You know, can't, that, that's the problem with the Rangers. Draft a guy named Fred. Let's go. Let's move on to a, a different name, okay? Uh, that that's the problem. If I'm in the if I'm in the room on, on on draft day, that's the stuff I'm saying. That's the kind of impact I'm making on that. By the way, which by the way, it, Evan, did, we we didn't even talk about the fact that, and I just want to mention it now before I forget it. But uh, they're going to have all kinds of all star stuff here. You got that schedule coming out right that week. Uh, yeah, be- we we uh, we had that yesterday. That. Um- I think the only real thing that we hadn't reported is is the definitive answer on where the draft would be. And the draft is going to be uh, – the first night of the draft will be in Fort Worth at the Stockyards at Cowtown Coliseum. Certainly gives um, the network, and I don't know if ESPN will carry it, um, the, uh, the ability to show lots of longhorns and steers so that everybody knows we're, we're here in Texas. Um, <laughs> But that is that's the one event that won't take place in Arlington. I, I think the um, I think the weekend is set up to be a really cool weekend for for people. If if you are if you're inclined to enjoy baseball and the celebration of baseball, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it'll be fun. We'll talk about that more later. But just a little shout out for that. So all right, back to uh, whoever that was you were talking about that pitched yesterday, Nicole Owen. <laughs> win, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a, this is a big spring for Cole. Um, he's a 2018 first round draft pick, and he has not cracked the big leagues yet. Um, and in a lot of ways, he went backwards last year. And it, it's time for him to to take a step forward. And Bruce Bochy spoke, talked him up a little bit before his start uh, against Chicago on Monday. Um, and in specifics, talked about not putting too much pressure on himself. And then he went out and looked like a kid who put too much pressure on himself. Walked the first hitter, um, second batter in the white. And he, he faced a very legitimate White Sox starting lineup. You know, Moncada and Luis Robert uh, and Andrew Benintende were all in the top three. But he walked Benintende, um, allowed a, a, a soft two-strike um, single on a deep count to uh, – to Mancada, uh, then threw a wild pitch and then hit Robert. So it was not a great a great start, but he did rebound to keep the inning there uh, after a visit from Mike Maddox and did work into his second inning. But no, it wasn't particularly sharp. And the other thing that stood out for me is, you know, Cole's going to have to be a guy. He's got to be a guy that commands the strike zone because his fastball is, you know, it tops out around 94. He doesn't have anything that's absolutely electric. And uh, he faces an, an, an uphill battle, you know, with uh, with opportunity there to, to put himself in a pecking order for uh, an opportunity this summer, this, this summer, if the Rangers have an injury, 
it's important that he sees it. And I think each op, each start this spring for him is is important. And this was not a terribly good one. I mean, even Bochi, you know, as he tried to not go too far one way or another, you could tell that he was like, yeah, there were some there were some misses in there. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say, uh, based on that, uh, yeah, you know, it's an amazing thing about the, the Rangers and their inability, uh, to, uh, find pitching, develop it pitching, you know, they've traded for it, signed it. Uh, they're much better at that than they are at certainly drafting and developing it. Uh, it, it is a remarkable record, you know, and I'd like to, at some point, maybe just go around the league and because look, pitching is harder to find than anything else, right? Pitchers get hurt. You, you can find a, the greatest pitching prospect ever, and the chances of him getting hurt are probably like 35%, maybe more than that uh, And at some point. And so that's that's kind of been the issue all along, although it, it just seems to me that back in the 80s, there were a lot more guys who were coming up, and that and most of those guys just got hurt. Uh, you know, they, they were finding guys with, with talent, and they could do a lot. And, some of, of course, that, that decade produced – Kevin Brown and Kenny Rogers, who are the two greatest pitching prospects uh, that have ever made it to the, to the big leagues for the Rangers. And Bobby so, Witt. And, Bo- and Bobby, Bobby Witt. Witt. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Um, you know, uh, Edwin Correa got hurt. He was obviously a legitimate pitching prospect. And um, Jose Guzman got hurt. Jose, he Guzman. Jose Guzman had some serviceable years before he got hurt, sure. Uh, but, no, they haven't had a run like that. And I will say this. I, I think it is – it's more difficult across MLB at this point in time to develop pitching, which again, to me, is why it's so shocking that we're sitting here three weeks into spring training and Jordan Montgomery and, and Blake Snell are not signed. You know, pitching is super valuable and teams have not have not gone out and signed two legitimate starting pitchers. As far as the Rangers go, they just they have not hit another vein of legitimate starting talent. Maybe Jack Leiter and Kamar Rocker will be it. They haven't gone as fast as the Rangers would like. Maybe they will be it. Maybe Owen White um, will take another step this year. But this is this has been the the team's big issue, and I think it's a big part of why the Rangers find themselves right now in this kind of position where uh, they've spent a lot of money on starting pitching. Do they spend more? Um, and carry higher into the tax bracket, or do they say, no, it, it stops here, we've got to develop our own pitching? Yeah, you know, and let's talk about that just for a second before we get out of this Rangers segment, the, the Jacob deGrom signing, uh, you know, because that, if if you're looking at it now, uh, what you're asking to, to sign Jordan Montgomery is far less uh, than and what you would, you're paying Jacob deGrom, and a guy who... Uh, is probably a lot less in you know likely to get hurt than Jacob Degrom uh, as well, and boy, I, I just don't know how Chris Young talked Ray Davis into it. Frankly, I mean, it, that, that looking back now, it just seems like wow, that was remarkable that he got that done. It was it was an extreme risk, um, but there were potential for extreme rewards. And listen, I also feel like if you don't sign Degrom. You don't sign Avaldi and Heaney uh, afterwards. I think Degrom opened the path for those guys to view this team as a as a real legitimate contender. Um, I will say this: Look, 
Cody Bellinger signed a three-year deal with to return to the Cubs on on Sunday, or agreed to a three-year deal to return to the Cubs on Sunday. It's one of Scott Boris's famous pillow contracts that include opt-outs after years one and years two. So essentially, it's a series of one-year contracts. Um, or, yeah, unless something better comes along for Bellinger. I think this presents a path for the Rangers and Montgomery and Boris to have another conversation. It appears that the Red Sox are the only other team that have really had any kind of talks with Montgomery. Um, and I think if they wanted to get a Montgomery deal done, uh, well, I, I say I think if they wanted – let me rephrase that. I think if Montgomery wanted to be a Red Sox, he'd be a Red Sox by now. It's pretty clear Jordan Montgomery wants to be back with the Rangers. And so I think there's an opportunity here for the Rangers and Ray Davis to come out smelling like a rose because you could potentially sign Montgomery to a pillow contract that, op- that presents opts out and maybe even encourages to opt out him out for him to opt out with lower contracts or lower salaries for years two and three, but you get the guy for the short term on the front side, which fills an immediate need. You don't end up having to make a five or six year commitment, which is what it looked like the market was going to call for, for Jordan Montgomery. Um, And maybe with the way money has been deferred around this off season, maybe you can even bring the average, uh, the average of that contract down a little bit by deferring money so that the money that's actually the AAV is compounded based on what the future value of that money is, which is less than, than what it is today. So I think there's an opportunity and a pathway for the Rangers to move forward. It just comes down to this. It comes down to whether Ray Davis is willing to spend more money or not. It's simply at this point in time an ownership decision. I, I think baseball operations has made it clear they'd like to pursue, pursue forward on Montgomery I think it's clear that Montgomery would like to be with the Rangers. And I think that, you know, the team, as we started this whole segment out, the team has brought up the idea that they would like Jordan Montgomery back on that roster. So there's a pathway forward. It's it's whether or not the Rangers are willing to go down that pathway. And the last part of that, of course, is the TV uncertainty. Well, the Rangers are going to get close to what they were supposed to get this year. They're going to get somewhere between 90 and $95 million. They're going to take a a discount of about $15, $20 million. That's a lot of money, but they're also getting a lot of money. And there's uncertainty for 25 and 26, but if you're only tied down to Montgomery for sure for 24, again, you potentially eliminate some of that uncertainty going forward if he de- if he decides to opt out after year one. All right, one last question before we get out of the Rangers segment. Do we got an idea yet what the season ticket pack uh, sales are this year? Yeah, they're up. Um, the equivalencies so far are up about uh, they're they're up about ten percent over what they ended up at last year. Um, and I'm using that qualifier because I don't know where they were at this point in time this year, but I think they're right at about. 16,000 full season equivalencies, which is the most they've had in, in quite some time. And I think that, you know, it's possible that by the time you get to opening day, you could be above 17.5, close to close to 18 in terms of, of full season equivalencies. Yeah. I think that just, puts just, the Rangers on, on, I think that puts the Rangers 
on track to potentially average over 35,000 a game and, and close in on 3 million in fans. Yeah. Just, that's just a, something for uh, Ray Davis to be mulling as he looks over this stuff. Yeah. And you know, I mean, with, 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 with the Rangers, you're talking about ticket sales, but also every one of those tickets basically comes with somebody paying parking because there's no public transportation and all of that goes back into the Rangers money as well. So it's a big windfall. Ticket sales are a bigger windfall here than they are in some other markets. I bet they are. I thought about the parking and that uh, issue. Good points. All right. That's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. We're going to go now into a full potpourri because we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We should note here, obviously, uh, for the listeners out there wondering where David Moore is, we don't know either. He's lost in Big Bend, apparently, wandering around down there. Uh, they've got Rangers out looking for him. It's really not the, tech, not the baseball players, but the Texas Rangers looking for David. Uh, this is Really a bad development. Uh, I didn't want to bring the podcast down, but that's uh, that's the. the, the I, I I trust David. He's I trust David to find his way out of Big Bend. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure if I really want him to find his way out of Big Bend, but that's okay. Uh, if he does or he doesn't, either way, it's okay. Uh, so David's not with us today, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about everything because uh, because first of all. The combine is going on right now, or as uh, Blackie Sherrod used to call it, the underwear Olympics, uh, in which the uh, guys are poked and prodded and timed and judged and misjudged. Uh, and so we find out lots of things about these players. No- nothing's happened really so far as to earth shattering. I haven't watched any of it. Uh, have you ever watched the, the the combine as it's going on, Evan? I really, honestly, I honestly have not spent any time watching the combine with any intent. There have been times when the NFL network has been on in a place of business where I have been and I've watched some guys sprinting. Um, but look, it's I'm pretty not, terrible. I'm, it's I'm pre- not it's big on terrible. the Wonderlic test. I'm not big on, on the sprints. Um, again, you know, I, I, I just, they don't take, they don't give the Wonderlic test anymore, but you know, I, they I don't, I, not in that form, that because okay. it was challenged on a lot of uh, for a lot of reasons, it was biased and a lot of other things. I did, however, take the Wonderlic test once. Gary Myers, who was our former uh, Cowboys and NFL writer, got the test and brought it into the office, and so I took it. You know, it's, it's timed, and there was a lot of duress going on, people hooting and yelling at me, and that kind of stuff as I was taking it. I made a thirty-two, which I thought was pretty good considering the circumstances and considering how much angst I have about tests in general. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, just wanted to drop that in there. Um, the, the It's not fun to watch the combine. The only thing that's, that, that is good about the combine, if there's anything at all, I, I can't even really, you know, I, I think it's a it's probably a good thing to do, although what players are, are starting to do now is wanting just to at their own pro days and on their own campuses. They prefer that environment. Just feels a little friendlier to them, and obviously they're getting to stay at home, uh, or at least where they go to college and uh, and do that kind of thing. So we'll see. But I think that if you're looking for stars, I think the thing, and the, 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 I know that the Wonderlick test or the 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 the, the tests, the personality tests, are designed to find makeup. But whether you're scouting baseball players or football players. You can look at all the physical tools in the world. It's about guys 
who maximize their skills. And how you quantify that, any team that can find a way to do that, that's a team that's going to create a competitive advantage. You look at Brock Purdy. You look at Tom Brady. Uh, you know, these were not guys who were who went through combines and who were analyzed by everybody and weren't high draft picks. And they, they've gone on to be lead teams to Super Bowls. In one case, the best super the best quarterback ever. Uh, I, I think there's I think there's some value in some of the things. It's not necessary to be at the combine, uh, really. But but I can remember there was a Baylor football player. I can't remember his name now, but he was a very productive player in college. And then he went to the combine, and they they put 225 pounds on the bench, and then they ask you to you know to bench presses as many times as you could, and he, got, he did like 10, you know, which was for a defensive lineman was terrible. And it just it just killed his uh, draft prospects at that point. I do think there are things you can find out. Although you know the old thing about you know they they come in and they talk to these guys and they interview them and and I think I think those kind of things are are probably good as long as people are asking the right questions. I got to tell you, sometimes I, I've I've learned uh, in this business that uh, people that get uh, going for interviews and they someone says they interviewed poorly. It's like well then what exactly happened in there? That's what I want to know. What were you asking, first of all? Because if we remember, there was a, a former Cowboy scout, Jeff Ireland, who asked some questions that he shouldn't have asked uh, the players and, uh, and and put himself in a bad light and the organization in a bad light. So well, uh, we there, put ourselves a, in a, whether it's football or baseball or or whatever or, or the corporate world in general, I, I feel like we put ourselves in a world where people win interviews and they win jobs based on that. And we're not getting a full picture of who people are. The, you know, for me, the example is, and I, Jeff Bannister won two division titles with the Rangers, right? But at that point in time, the Rangers had a choice between Jeff Bannister and Kevin Cash. And for what the Rangers wanted, Jeff Bannister presented the winning interview. He was a Texan. He talked like a Texan. He walked like a Texan. He talked analytics in a big sense. But if you were to go back now and say, who was the better choice? It was Kevin Cash, but he didn't present himself in the interview quite the same way that Jeff Bannister did. And and I think there's plenty of cases of that throughout throughout sports. Guys win interviews. Look, the Rangers once had a chance to hire Dave Dombrowski or John Hart, and they chose John Hart over David Dombrowski. They chose a, a guy who simply wanted money because he chewed tobacco in the interview, because he spoke in you know, colorful epithets to Tom Hicks and spoke like a baseball guy. And David came across as kind of wonky. And David Dombrowski's a Hall of Fame executive, and he's won multiple World Series. The Rangers went through a decade of trying to recover from what they did by by overpass uh, by bypassing him. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. No question about that. All right. Also, we have uh, uh, going on uh, this uh, this week the rain. Uh, the Mavericks are in the uh, the midst of a big uh, road trip here, uh, and then they'll be back on Sunday. Uh, they they did not get off to a good start. They, they, their seven game winning streak was snapped uh, in a loss to the Indiana Pacers. I I, I think it's really interesting that uh, Rick Carlisle was viewed toward the end of his tenure with the Mavericks as a guy that couldn't get along with Luka Doncic. Uh, publicly, all you ever heard was Rick talking about how great Luka is. But then you would see games uh, where Luka's turning, looking at the bench, kind of glaring at the bench, putting his hands up. Obviously, these were not good signals. Um, and and then, you know, Rick left. 
Uh, and as, uh, you know, Donnie Nelson once told me, we wanted him to be our coach forever. That was our, our thinking was that Rick, we have hired our coach as long as he wants the job. And then Rick left. Uh, and he goes to Indiana and the Pacers were not a good team, uh, not a good franchise when he went there. And lo and behold, now they're the, the, uh, the scoring machine of the NBA of the new NBA. Uh, nobody uh, puts up numbers like the Pacers do. So I think we have to view Rick in a kind of a new light. Uh, I, I'm not saying that every coach has to, you know, if a coach can't get along or there's a problem, whatever the, the situation was between Rick Carlisle, and Luka Doncic, uh, obviously, Luca wins uh, in that in that situation. There are only so many superstars. There's more coaches to choose from. Um, so uh, if that wasn't going to happen, it doesn't mean that you know that Rick was a bad coach. Uh, it doesn't mean that necessarily Luca's a bad guy. It's just a bad fit uh, between the two. So far, we haven't seen that kind of thing. I, I, I need to say this. I need to interrupt on on this on one front too. Rick Carlisle. No. He spent 13 years as the Mavericks head coach. Um, He clearly was not a bad head coach, but there is, and you know, the the hockey world cycles through this more than any other, than any other sport. There is a point in time where the voice and the lock in the clubhouse or the locker room or the, the dressing room, they just don't connect. And I think it's inevitable. You know, it's, I, I guess it's a line from Batman, right? You either, you either die young enough to be a hero or you live long enough to be a villain and eventually, I don't think, I, I guess what I'm saying is Rick Carlisle shouldn't be remembered as a bad Dallas Mavericks coach because he and Doncic maybe did not uh, jive all that well. Obviously, Carlisle won, won an NBA championship here with the Mavericks. He was a good coach. He's in a good position right now for him in Indiana. At some point in time, if he stays with the Pacers long enough, that will cycle out too. Um yeah, no, no, well, we all, should. All yeah, all points well taken. No, no question about that. What I'm just saying is that uh, when a coach, I, I guess what I'm saying is that when you look at the history of coaches, when they leave or get fired, or whatever, uh, it actually things kind of went south. Which it, it's a, of course it did here. I think a lot of the problem here was not really his fault. It was he was presented a different roster every year. After, after they won the title, it was like, not we're, you know, the Mavericks blew it up. And then, you know, every year it's like a new set of guys uh, at, uh, working around Dirk at first. And then it was Luca after that. And so it got to be a little bit, you know, ridiculous to think that he's going to keep doing this. And he, and he did, you know. And uh, but what you always heard about Rick was that, you know, people in the business talked about how brilliant he was. Now, he, Rick was a little insufferable at times, uh, but that's okay. I don't mind that as long as the guy's doing what he's supposed to be doing. There, there's a lot more fan discontent with Jason Kidd at this point. Uh, the Everybody's expectations have been ramped up, especially after that Western Conference Finals run, and uh, and and the team has kind of gone backwards. Now, it's been playing better lately. Uh, as I said, the, the seven-game winning streak broken with the loss of the Pacers. We'll see what they do. As we're taping this on Tuesday, they're playing the Cavaliers tonight. Um, we'll see what they do uh, before they get back here on Sunday uh, against the 76ers. That's a noon start locally. I will be out there for that game. So uh, we'll see where they're going at this point. I think they're a, a markedly better team than they were before the trade deadline when they when they added those two guys, Daniel Gafford and P.J. Washington. Uh, they 
they started off like gangbusters. It's it's kind of uh, pulled back a little bit now as they try to figure out their rotations and what they want to do, and they're experimenting with a few things. P.J. Washington has not distinguished himself as a scorer. He was not shooting well from the three-point line uh, before the trade, and it has gotten even worse since. Uh, but he is a very active player. He's a good defensive player. They can play him on several different players. So he's making a contribution. I'll, I'll give him that. Uh, but he's going to have to step it up some. Brad Townsend wrote uh, for today's paper that they're going to have to get more production out of Tim Hardaway. You know, Josh Green has kind of supplanted him in the rotation, and that's fine. But uh, uh, even when Josh Green is going well, that's not really his role is to be uh, an offensive spark. Uh, he's more of an energy guy. Uh, Tim Hardaway is a, a scorer, pure and simple. And the Mavericks are going to need that if they're going to make some kind of run here at the end of the season. So we'll we'll see what they do uh, going forward. Um, Kevin, are you going to on Sunday if the Mavericks win? Are you going to storm the court? I'm going to storm the court. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we want to talk about this court storming business. I just think it's an amazing thing that this has become an issue now. And of course, you know, it wasn't just storming courts. You know, it was before that it was storming football fields and pulling down goalposts and all that business and. Uh, you know, I will say I have been at games where that kind of stuff has happened, you know, and it's a spectacle to watch, right? I mean, it's kind of like, wow, what's going to happen here? But kind of what you're waiting for is, is it, it's like watching a car wreck, right? It's, it's like, wow, w- what is the worst thing that's going to come out of this? It's not like you're looking at it and going, boy, isn't this wonderful that all these people have run down there onto the field and my gosh, I'm all emotional at the side of it. It's like, Holy cow, what's going to happen now? So the, the idea that, of course, this is all stemming from the fact that we had a, a player hurt uh, recently, a, a fan storming the court. Uh, and then we, what we find out is that, you know, like in the ACC, yeah, we don't really have any rules against this kind of thing. You know? And, and how, how is that possible? There is 4,000 rules in the NCAA manual. I don't think the NCAA has a rule against it either. It's like, Shouldn't we make this a bigger deal than it is? I know that there's some some talk about uh, in the SEC about what the uh, the fines are for it, right? Uh, it, it can get up to two hundred fifty, even five hundred thousand dollars for I think a third offense in the SEC. Uh, but as someone pointed out, you know what? If the boosters like this enough and everybody's happy, they they, they call they make a couple of calls. Somebody sends the money in, they pay the fine. That's that. I don't think that's going to stop fans from rushing to a quarter field if they know they're getting fined. What do the fans care they're getting fined? Uh, all right, so, okay, I, I, there was a lot of talk. You know, in the Rangers clubhouse, they have all the TVs on um, kind of overhead, so it's it, it's inescapable. And um, uh, yesterday, there was there was a lot of video, thankfully, with the audio off of, of Stephen A. And, and Shannon Sharp talking about court storming. And I just started to go up to, to people in the clubhouse and saying, court storming, your thoughts, good or bad? Um, <laughs> and, and, listen, here's the deal. It is an incredible spectacle. I did, I've been involved in one when I covered Georgia and they won their lone SEC basketball title against LSU in Athens in that cow house known as Stegman Coliseum. Fan, players, I mean, uh, students were coming right over me on press row. I mean, like they leaped the the press row when we were sitting at courtside at the time. And it's a little bit scary, but it is also awesome to watch. 
I think in the in this day and age of I, I guess the only question I'd have is if and this is so stupid to even say, but has the etiquette of fans changed? Was there a point in time when fans stormed fields or stormed courts in a way that basically didn't put opposing players in harm's way? We've had Caitlin Clark get hurt, and we've had uh, Filipowski get hurt this year in instances. And again, I also think that the other part of court storming that we aren't really talking about is Maybe there was an element that when we were younger, and here we go, we're old, grumpy men, but maybe there was an element, you saved a court storming for a championship clincher, or you saved a court storming for a um, NCAA tournament upset. There just didn't happen to be this many regular season things, and maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I, I The only thing I can say is, I watched the video of the Duke Wake Forest court storming because ESPN chose to run it 150 times in the course of an hour. And there was a security guard basically smiling at fans and waving them onto the court. I don't think that's quite the message we want to send. Probably the security guards are supposed to keep fans off the court. That is supposed to be their job. Don't wave them on and say, okay, it's all good. Yeah, that's the thing I don't understand. It's like, why do we have decorum anyway? Why do we have security guards anyway? Why not just let them come out there all the time? It's like, sure, your, your seat's up here. Oh, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about where your seat is. Come on down. Sit anywhere you want. Run over anybody you want. You want to sit down on the bench? Go right ahead. Sit down right down there. I mean, it, it yeah, I mean, I, ludicrous to me. I can't, like, again, I don't want to see a security guard necessarily spear, uh, spearing a guy or getting a targeting flag for – for keeping a guy off the court, but at least make an effort to like restrain them and, and say, okay, let's move back. You know, let's, let's move back. And, and I think it's, it's on the schools more than it is the students. I, uh, students want to be enthusiastic and players like that. It's that students are enthusiastic. And um, when something happens that is, hasn't happened in a long time, they want to show that kind of pride. And it is cool to watch. I just don't want it to become, um, something that happens every week, you know? Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I my problem with it is, is that you're trying to make yourself too much of this. It's, it's, it's like fans who believe that when they're on the, that they're contributing to the win. Yes. If you make a lot of noise and you create an intimidating environment, that's yes, that does help. There's no question about that, but it's, it's that whole attitude of, of like, I'm Superman and I'm making something happen here. Uh, that that bugs me. It's like you're not the show. The players are the show. That's why you paid to come here to do this. Is at a rock concert? You don't see people running up on the stage. You yes, know, you do. Yeah, to- yeah. No, yes, you do. You haven't well, been to rock concerts lately. <laughs> well, you do, but they throw those people out on their ear. You know, so that's that's what they should be doing. You know, it's, it's funny when I was looking this all up for, and I was writing my newsletter the other day because uh, I always think about the old Mike Curtis clip where uh, the, the famous Baltimore coach linebacker and, and uh, a, a drunk guy runs out of the field and picks up a football, and, and Mike Curtis just levels him, right? Just boom, and the guy goes down. And so they were interviewing uh, Mike Curtis about it, and they were also interviewing Bill Curry. If you remember him, he was a center on those Colts teams, went on to coach at 
Georgia Tech, was a, a, a great guy. Um, and it clearly, there was not a good relationship between Bill Curry and Mike Curtis. And so Bill Curry was saying that after that game, he went up to Mike Curtis and said, why did you do that? You embarrassed us. And Bubba Smith told him the same thing. Bubba Smith and Bill Curry were both telling Mike Curtis, you shouldn't have done that. And, of course, Mike Curtis basically, you know, told them, screw you guys. Uh, you know, he came out there on the field, and this is what I do. And I have to say, I in, in life, I'm more of a Bill Curry, uh, Bubba Smith kind of guy. But in that kind of situation, I'm with Mike Curtis. You come out on the field, you, you take your chances, right? This, this is this is ridiculous. It's, it yeah, but that's a bad example for me because I can't – Bill Curry is such an honorable man. Um that's what I'm saying. It's a, it, it seems like a bad thing to to go against Bill Curry. Uh, but I got to tell you, uh, what you know, watching that, I don't want anybody out there on the field either. I I don't want in games people thinking they can inject themselves into it because first of all, if people start thinking they can do that, what's going to stop them? They're just going to do it all the time. It's just going to. You you watch. Well, I mean we've. If they don't take charge of this situation, it will just start happening more and more and more. We've stopped showing on TV. The, the whole idea of, you know, on TV, we've stopped showing people who run onto the field with the idea that we're not going to publicize this, right? Because this is what people want. Hasn't stopped it. You know, we, we had somebody get onto the field during the Super Bowl. So um, it, it hasn't stopped it, Evan, but how much has it slowed it down? How much more would there be if they did that? I'm going to tell you I, right I, now, if they, didn't, if they showed people – Running on the field, people will be doing it every game. Well, Evan, let me ask you this, uh, because you're a you're a Georgia guy. So when Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run, breaking Babe Ruth's record, uh, circling the bases and fans running on the field, and he is running, from, he's on second, he's coming second base to third, and there are guys running up to him and slapping him on the back, and and clearly robbing. Hank Aaron of this wonderful moment. We should be concentrated on Hank Aaron, not these idiots who are running along beside him, slapping him on the back. Uh, every time I see that, that that is diminished for me. What Hank Aaron did that that's a that was a, a, a symbol of royalty. There, he is the new home run king, running around the bases, and and that's you know there, there's something too watching a guy circle the bases after a home run, and especially after one as significant as that in baseball history. Yeah, it's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, I still remember watching those guys come on the field as a eight-year-old and didn't like it then, don't like it when I see the film now, but it's it's still, it's it's always been a part of the film. I understand what you're saying. It does diminish what Aaron did in that moment because you can't think of him rounding the bases without that image of those kids uh, crowding the picture, but I don't want to ever think that it diminished the accomplishment. Um, oh no, not the just, accomplishment, but the moment right. is certainly tarnished, and that's it, that's just, the point. It's in, it's unfortunate, but here we are, fifty years later, right? It's it's April's going to be fifty years since Aaron hit seven fifteen, and that film still is um, that film still gets recycled. Every time when you see Aaron hitting 715, the only thing I think more about those two kids in that moment is, you know, Milo's voice saying there's a new home run champion of all time and it's Henry Aaron. Um, and, and that's what I prefer to think of than those two guys trying to slap him on the back. But 
Yeah, it is. It is unfortunate that fans. Unfortunate is not the right word. It's yeah. fans have always chosen to try. There, there's a segment of fans who have always tried to chose chosen to make themselves a part of the event, and they are there to witness the event, not be part of the event. Yeah, you, now, you witnessing could, it should be enough, is what I'm saying, right? It should right. be enough for you. It should be enough to sit in the stands and be part of all of that. Uh, but that that's the thing. You know, this is what someone once pointed out to me one time when I was, uh, uh, I don't know, probably getting some criticism. Hard to believe I would get any kind of criticism. But anyway, from readers and, and uh, someone pointed out, listen, you know, you don't really expect to write these this stuff. And everybody out there is sane, right? Uh, it's, it's like going to the ballpark. You think there's not in these... 30,000, 50,000, 70,000, 90,000, 100,000 people. There's not a few crazies out there. <laughs> and so, and so the, of course there are. So, so yeah, you're not going to be able to stop uh, this stuff from happening. But, you know, I think to, to get back to our original point, especially at basketball games, I don't know, it's such a smaller venue uh, than it is a football field where at least in a football field people can kind of get away. Uh, and players could probably get to a sideline or get to an exit on a basketball court. It's pretty crowded, and that floor is really hard, you know. And and so I think there there clearly needs to be rules set up where every arena, everywhere, at every level, say that this is prohibited. We're not going to allow this. If you do this, there will be repercussions, and you'll be sub you'll you'll be subject to legal action. You know. Uh, I don't, if you want to call it uh, trespassing, causing a public disturbance, whatever it is, we can we can charge you with something, and we will charge you with it. Uh, so uh, I just think, then, then to your original point as well, the security guard waving people on, eh, you know, that's not going to work. You're going to have to have. I don't want him to end up like in in uh, Animal House, where the uh, where the guys is saying that everything's okay, and then he gets run over, and then he's flattened out. You know, it's it's a it's a comic moment in the movie. I mean, uh, I don't want the security guards with like um, big chamber tasers where they can tase multiple people at one point in time. But at the no, same I point would time, like that. I, mean, I think that would be great. I think just seeing, seeing people lying on the ground shaking that would be super. That would be really fun to watch that happen. I don't know why nobody has come up with like a multi-round taser. That that seems like it would be a money maker in today's day and age. I I, I do know this. Um, when I was in high school, the two probably the two best high school programs in Georgia were in Macon, Northeast Macon, and and um, I think it was Macon Central. Um, and they installed chicken wire at the Macon Coliseum to keep fans from, from getting on the court. I mean, they, they literally put chicken wire. They, they put up like the, the barrier. Up there. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to see that happen either. Is that it too? Uh, were they throwing beer bottles at the, at the chicken wire like they did in the blues brothers? I think it was just to keep them from jumping on the court. I, I, I don't know. It was, um, I, 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 I don't want to see us get to that day and age where we're taking the old basketball term of cager to a whole new level where they're playing in a steel cage. <laughs> oh my gosh. Evan, I wish you two teams done. walk in, one team walks out. I don't I, that just doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> one chicken. Yeah, well that's our uh, two chickens. Yeah, that that's uh that's pretty good stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I just think that uh yeah, my, my belief is I don't want that kind of stuff to happen. I don't think it I don't remember that ever happening in a, a, I've been at a football game where it's happened, not at a basketball game. I do remember once 
that uh, after a basketball game at, uh, at old Barnhill Arena in Arkansas, that's before they uh, got built Bud Walton, uh, <laughs> that there was a, a sports writer who after the game, instead of walking around the table, stood up on the table and was trying to get over the table to go across the floor and fell flat on his face. I mean, the sound of it was like he, he'd been dropped off the Empire State Building. It was it was a, a really interesting moment. That's the closest I've ever come on basketball. I will just say in, in that moment, that is a moment that, that watching that, the end of that Georgia LSU game and watching those fans like hurdle the table to get on the floor, that is one of those moments that kind of in my mind, of an image from my career that just kind of continues to move in slow motion because it was a spectacle to see their first championship, obviously, in 50 years of playing SEC basketball, still their only regular season championship. But to see that that crowd of people just kind of swarm spontaneously, uh, it was awesome. I don't know if I was fond of it or not, but it was an awesome spectacle. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll leave it at that. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We'll be back again next week, talk more about all kinds of stuff, and, and maybe if there's been any more court storming, we can we'll bring up more anecdotes like that. And maybe we'll find out if anyone's uh, thinking about installing chicken wire uh, around their, the floor. I think that's a that sounds just like a Georgia kind of thing, though, to me. I don't think that's the kind of thing that would go over big in other places. Uh, that's that's part of your element. There. It was quite the quite the story. Yeah, no All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.